for years, for decades, companies have struggled with and usually failed in their change management efforts. It's probably because they're trying to change people. We'd make a lot more progress if people started trying to win the hearts and minds of their employees instead of trying to change them. Welcome to There's a Better Way, a podcast series focused on exploring how operational excellence principles can provide solutions in your personal and professional life. Each episode, Dr. Arvind Chandrasekharan, professor and academic director at The Ohio State University Fisher College of Business, will sit down with a prominent expert or faculty leader to discuss problems we face in our world today. This program is brought to you by the Master of Business Operational Excellence. Welcome to There is a Better Way. I'm here with uh, Dan Markowitz, author and consultant uh, on our podcast. Welcome to the program, Dan. Good morning, Arvind. Thank you so much for having me today. Dan, can you tell our listeners more about yourself and what do you do? Well, as you mentioned, of course, I'm an author and a consultant. I've uh, written and published uh, two Shingo Research Award-winning books. One is called A Factory of One, and the other is Building the Fit Organization. Both of them are different approaches to lean than is traditionally used. Um, and of course, I work as a consultant and a speaker. So I work with companies either to solve specific problems or work with them to help them launch a lean initiative uh, or a lean transformation. Um, so I'm all over the dish there. And then of course, I'll, I'll speak uh, in either at, at conferences such as uh, the Lean Enterprise Institute Summit or AME or other conferences uh, around the world. Okay, and today's topic uh, that we're gonna have a conversation over is on this idea of how do you change the culture of organizations. And um, I hate to use this term change management because again, uh, the way I see that is that this is a term that has been beaten to death. People talk about change management, change management, and still we fail to make adequate change. So why do you think that's happening? And what are some reasons why companies are not actually changing the culture? You know, if I think if I had uh, if I had the answer to that, of course, I would be retired on a Caribbean island right now. Uh, it's certainly a difficult uh, problem to solve. But I, I think that when we talk about change management, it really uh, it comes across the wrong way. It sounds as though we are trying to change people. And I think, uh, given the fact that we've had so many articles and books uh, written about the topic, and given that we've had so many conferences and organizations do dedicated to the topic, and it still doesn't seem to happen very well or very often, I think maybe we should think about it in a different way. Um, it occurs to me that what we're really trying to do is win over hearts and minds. People make changes all the time when their hearts and minds are engaged. I was thinking this morning that uh, any new parent Talk about a change in life. There's probably nothing more fundamental, nothing more uh, seismic than having a child. And all of a sudden, parents' lives change, and happily and completely, because their hearts and minds are involved. And when you think about it, when we talk about change management, we're always talking about communication plans and tools we're rolling out and posters and workshops and lectures. Um, there's not that much about people's hearts and minds. And maybe if we focused on that instead of on the tools, we might do a little bit better. So maybe that's what we should be talking about, not change management, but, but, but winning hearts and minds. Because if we could win hearts and minds, we can get people to do anything voluntarily and happily. Yeah, I like that. I like the way you framed it as like not just thinking about us changing uh, commitments to people, change is coming to them, but I need to win your hearts and minds over to make something better. 
right? So that's the whole way to frame it. So tell me more about why it's not working. I mean, like it, it, the reason why it's not working is because people are doing this as, uh, okay, here we go again, we're going to change something and, and not really spending enough time on the front line. Why do you think companies are struggling to win their hearts and minds of people? Boy, there are, uh, the list is nearly infinite. Some of them are cer certainly obvious. There's the flavor of the month problem uh, or flavor of the week uh, where a leader says, this is what we're going to do. And then either the leader loses focus uh, or perhaps the leader changes or the executive team changes. And all of a sudden we're not going left, we're going right. We're not going right, we're going sideways. Uh, so that's certainly a problem. Uh, there's poor communication. Uh, but I think, I think for me, a few of the things that are less obvious where we make mistakes, uh, first is that we tend, I think, to lead with, especially in the continuous improvement world, in the lean world, we tend to lead with physical paraphernalia. So we get our posters, we make Kaizen submission cards, we have visual management boards, we have 5S checklists and all this stuff. And instead of focusing on what, people should, how people should be feeling, we're giving them a bunch of artifacts, a bunch of things to use. And as long as the behaviors are not changing, uh, those things just become flotsam and jetsam that clog up people's uh, inboxes and their desks and does nothing to inspire them. I think there's a, another issue is really a, a fundamental lack of investment. Uh, both in terms of money and time. One of the great success stories in terms of change management was the Numi example of Toyota and GM's joint venture. And in one year, the worst performing plant in GM's ecosystem became the best performing. Now, GM and Toyota moved 600 people around, uh, both people from 400 trainers from Toyota uh, from, the U from Japan to the US and, um, and uh, 600 newbie employees or, or GM employees went to Japan for several weeks. That's a, a colossal expenditure of time and money and people. And a company that I visited uh, recently, uh, Cambridge Engineering down in uh, St. Louis, they make HVAC, HVAC systems. Uh, they had a guy who was working there for many years and was very skeptical of this continuous improvement initiative. Finally, what really turned him around was when the president of the company said, listen, I want everyone to commit an hour every single day to doing continuous improvement or at the very least cleaning. And he said, and by the way, even during the busy season, I'm going to pay you. If you have to stay and work an extra hour of overtime, that's no problem. And that investment, both in time and money, time and a half pay, made this employee who was the most skeptical say, wow, they're really serious. And with that, he fully embraced it. So it doesn't have to be a thousand people moving around the globe for periods of weeks. It could be something as simple as we're carving out an hour during the day and we're going to pay you for it um, hmm. to show that we're really serious. Yeah, I mean, and this, this story resonates uh, a lot with, with some of the things that I've learned about 3M, for instance. 3M, um, they have this culture of innovation, and one way to instill the culture of innovation was that they created this 15% rule, where 15% uh, of your billable time, you can spend on uh, thinking about uh, products or processes that are outside your scope. So that way, your company is owning that, and you are actually like creating a culture where they can think outside their box and innovate. So what you're saying here is that that, that has to come first, 
for any individual within the organization to think about and make changes differently. Absolutely, Aravind. You you know, you think about it. I I don't know. I've never been in a single organization where people are twiddling their thumbs and saying, boy, I really am looking for something else to do. I've got plenty of time on my hands. People already feel maxed out. And so when we say to them, okay, not only do you have to do your job, but we also want you to think about improving your job, or we want you to be uh, come up with innovation. But by the way, we're not going to invest in it. We just want you to figure out how to do it. That's, that's a big ask. And where are, how can the company show that it really supports it? I think that in keeping with this notion of, of why companies struggle to make these changes, there is a focus on culture. People say, well, we want an innovative culture. We want a culture of continuous improvement. We want a culture of respect or whatever it happens to be. And the problem is culture is an outgrowth of the behaviors. Um, And I think that we have to start focusing on the behaviors that the company does and the leadership instills and the leadership models in order to get the culture to change. Um, And although this is maybe a bit of an opaque analogy, I think we're focusing on the egg and not the chicken. Or maybe we're not focusing on the chicken. We're focusing on the chicken, not the egg. But which, whichever direction it is, I don't think we're focusing on the right part. We're focusing on this ambiguous, intangible element called culture when it was, it's so much easier to focus on what people do. Mm, interesting. So let's think about this differently. Like, let's think about, like, here is an organization whose um, the leader is willing to put all these efforts, as you mentioned put the commitment first, put the process there, make sure that the people are understanding and owning by giving them time. But then one of the things that we see in in the recent times is that the the workforce is changing. The one thing that I've seen at least is basically you're dealing with these millennial Gen Z people who don't want to stay in a job for long and they keep moving. That's the way they operate. So now put that into the equation and see how do you now make changes? Because now you try to invest these things as an organization and try to improve things, but then you taught these people, but they are no longer there. They just move out. Do you see that as a big problem for organizations in these days? Well, it certainly makes it more difficult when you do have a constant level of churn in your employee base. Obviously, you have to you can't just set it and forget it. You can't just say, okay, here's our culture. Everyone understands it. And the people that work here are going to be here for 40 years. So we're good to go. So it places a greater premium on constant maintenance and reinforcement of the behaviors. But at the same time, I don't think that, I think if we can create policies, if we can create systems, we, uh, in, in order to emphasize those behaviors we're looking for, I think that it, first of all, it makes it that it's, it's less of an arduous burden. And second, I think we'll end up losing fewer young people. And when I talk about systems, uh, let's go back actually to, uh, to 3M. 3M has said people should have 15% of their time uh, paid for to do things that are not within their job scope. 3M has also done something where they insist uh, that 20, I think it's 20% or 25% of their revenues come from products. 33%. Okay, come from products invented in the last five years. So they've built this mechanism to stimulate that kind of innovation. Now, on a a more local level, there are things that that leaders can do to, to, uh, to attract and retain 
younger uh, millennials and, and, and Gen Z folks. Uh, I think about um, Menlo Innovation, uh, which is up, as you probably know, software company. They're up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got plenty of younger workers who stay quite a while. Uh, one of the things that, that, that Rich Sheridan has done, and I don't know if it's formalized, but he allows people to bring their babies to work. They don't have a daycare facility, but if you, you can see pictures, you go there, they've got playpen set up for kids and people are holding the babies. And it's something that most companies would never allow. Mm. But he does this and it, makes a, it creates a, a culture of caring and nurturing and shows that the organization uh, cares about the entire person. And they're going to be less likely to leave. Paul Akers over at um, FastCap in Bellingham, Washington, Every day he has a morning meeting, and during the morning meetings, one of the things that he does is teach people. Uh, they have lessons on U.S. history and politics and social studies because he believes in investing in the entire person, not just the hands, not just the skill to make a product or to pack a product, but to develop the, 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 the worker as a, as a whole entire person. His turnover is extraordinarily low. These are pretty simple examples, but I think that if you institutionalize the way that we, uh, the, the company treats uh, workers, the way that it interacts and values workers, I think that the attrition rate, the turnover, drops dramatically. In fact, I would argue that people, I don't know if people are fundamentally different. Human beings are fundamentally different than they were 10 years ago or 30 years ago or 50 years ago. I think that there has been a huge change in the way corporations operate. And if you think about it, um, we really in the last 30 years or so have been, um, uh, companies have followed Milton Friedman's uh, precept uh, argument that shareholder, shareholder value is the primary purpose, increasing shareholder value is the primary purpose of, of the corporation. And that means that everything is second to that, including employees. So plants are shut down, employees are laid off, as long as you can, you can increase profitability. So in an environment like that, why would a younger person ever want to show loyalty to a company that will never show it loyalty? Hmm. And so I think there's been a huge change there on the corporate side, not so much on the human side, the employee side. Yeah, this is, I mean, some of these examples actually resonate a lot with me. What you're trying to say is that, again, these people um, really have uh, a culture of continuous improvement and ensure that people are not turning over. You've got to respect the individual as an individual because what your, all your examples tells me that, okay, just don't like uh, uh, compensate or like value your employees as a, a 40-hour person, but there is something behind them be it the example that you talked about having a daycare, uh, showing that like your family is equally important when come to work, or the history lessons you talked about in terms of, hey, um, it's important to you to learn about some things and that may not be related to your job. So valuing that employee as a whole person rather than just like uh, your technical talent is one way to retain this talent is what you're talking about. I really like the, the, that, that way of framing the problem for companies. You know, when you talk about valuing a person, uh, to me, one of the, the extreme example of this it was Paul O'Neill when he was a, the head of Alcoa, right? It's a legendary story now that I think most recently was told in Charles Duhigg's book, uh, The Power of Habit. But he said, I want to make Alcoa the safest company in America. Hmm. 
smelting aluminum is a very difficult and dangerous, uh, very dangerous uh, uh, job. And he wanted to make sure that no one got not just killed. He wanted to make sure no one got hurt. And so um, as a result of showing care and institutionalizing things to ensure that, that, uh, that people wouldn't get hurt, um, their profitability went up dramatically. People started making all kinds of improvements. Um, now, you, Duhigg say, makes arguments about habits and whatnot. I, I think that perhaps even more important than this idea of the habit is just that all of a sudden at the very highest level, someone said, the leader said, CEO said, you are important to me. Every single one of you are important to me. I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that you go home safely. That's a message that's also been, been echoed, of course, at Barry Waymiller by Bob Chapman. Um, and they, of course, are remarkably successful. When you yeah. care about people, people bring their hearts and their minds to work. And the, the, the improvements they bring uh, are astonishing. So, so one, one thing that you're trying to say here, Dan, is basically when you think about, again, changing and, and, and creating this whole perfect organization is, is develop this, this mindset of the people. And then create, like, I, I like that idea of, again, it, it is not just enough for you to, like, create a 15% rule when you don't have alignment with what organizations want. So if, the, if 3M's 15% rule would not go anywhere until 3M's organization's goal is this whole idea of one-third of their products should come from new products developed in the last three years. So, so clearly that alignment, along with the people's skill sets and the purpose, I think, makes these organizations constantly change and change for the better. Exactly right. You said it more concisely and more eloquently than I did. That's exactly right. Okay. And I, I want to go back to like, um, are there, as, as you know, you travel all around the world and, and do these things. Are there any best examples? You mentioned already a couple of them, Merlot Innovation, you talked about Numi Plant. Are there anything that um, um, people, our listeners out there might be also interested in like learning about where you see these things are actually happening? I mean, nothing is perfect, but it's closer to perfection. Yeah, obviously, I, I did mention a few of these. Um, there is a company that makes um, fly fishing rods and reels, mostly rods up in, uh, Bel- uh, in Washington State. And the, they were having quality problems. Um, and they were set up like any or- ordinary company. And when they hired a new head of operations, uh, he ripped down his office wall so that his office now was right on the shop floor. Uh, this was revolutionary for them. Um, and obviously, it gave him faster access to sea problems. But it was the psychological change that was really impactful for people, which is to say that all of a sudden, he wasn't above them, uh, the workers on the, on, on the shop floor. He was there as a colleague to help solve problems. And it really made a remarkable difference um, in his telling because all of a sudden people were were not hiding things because they could just yell over to him, hey, help me out with this. And of course, he could see when people were struggling. So I think separating, taking down some of the uh, physical trappings of power and authority is really important. Russell Ackoff, the, the, the management expert, meant, made a comment once in a, in, a, in a conference. He said, you know, 
executives always talk about maximizing shareholder value. He says, but if that were true, they wouldn't be flying on company jets and working <laughs> in, marble in offices with marble floors and mahogany lined uh, conference rooms. Because clearly that's not necessary for shareholder value. They do it because it makes them feel good. And at the same time, it creates this, this, this uh, dichotomy, this gap between the frontline worker and the, and the, uh, and the executive. And being able to tear those, those walls down, literally or metaphorically, I think makes a really big difference. Um, Pat, uh, Jim Lancaster, the new CEO of Lantech, uh, in his book, The Work of Management, he describes that one of the biggest changes he's made is that he goes, he does his walk, his gimbal walk every single morning um, and walks through the entire plant and talks to everyone and helps people solve problems that morning while he's there. And that creates, once again, uh, it, it breaks down that, that, uh, that distance, the psychological distance, the emotional distance between the top leadership and the frontline staff. And that has made an enormous difference. Um, the Cambridge Engineering, which I mentioned earlier, in addition to saying to people, you'll get paid overtime, they have a daily, <laughs> they have a, a daily meeting with, with uh, all hands meeting where people have opportunities to, to talk about their improvements. But they also do other things to, to show people that they care. They provide a adoption child credit. If you want to adopt a child, uh, they will provide, I think it's $2,000, if I'm not mistaken, uh, to employees to help them because they value families. Mm. Uh, and that's, I mean, you think about it, that, that's, that's and crazy. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, in fact, along those lines, Patagonia, I don't know if you know about Patagonia, yeah. but they actually pay their workers to go and uh, employees to go and actually do something socially good. Yeah, that social mission. So it's, it's all coming together, Dan. I think like, again, having these processes, having their message cleared out and owning it and creating transparency and creating um, uh, minimizing hierarchy are some things that you see companies are actually doing to make all these things happen. So I think it's, those are very good examples out there. So I know we are running out of time, Dan. So I really, really want to thank you so much for your time. I think this has been a fascinating conversation. I know I learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners are going to learn a lot from listening to this podcast. Thank you so much, Dan. It's been a real pleasure for me. You're welcome. And I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that you invited me to be on the podcast. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of There's a Better Way. To listen to our other episodes and for more information on the Master of Business and Operational Excellence, please visit go.osu.edu backslash M-B-O-E.